everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Paige Niedringhaus. Hey, everybody. Carl Mungazi. Hey, hey, hey. TJ Van Toll. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, I'm going to do a quick shout out about React Native Remote Conference. So if you're looking at building mobile apps or you are building mobile apps, go check that out. It'll be at the end of July. And uh, this week we have a special guest, and that is Bryce. Is it Ayers? Ayers, yep. Hey, folks. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with React Native? Maybe you heard the Chain React conference was canceled and you're a little bit sad about that. Well, I borrowed their dates and I'm doing an online conference. So if you want to come and learn from the best of the best from React Native, then come do it. We have people like Christopher Shadow from Facebook. He's going to come and he's going to talk to us and answer questions about the origins of React Native. We're also going to have Gant Laborde from Infinite Red and several of the panelists and past panelists from React Native Radio. So come check it out at reactnativeremoteconf.com. That's reactnativeremoteconf.com. Bryce, do you want to just introduce yourself real quick, let people know who you are and why you're important? <laughs> why I'm important? Yeah, definitely. My name is Bryce Ayers, uh, software engineer. I've been writing software professionally for, I guess, several years now. Been building websites for probably 15 plus years, back when I was just a young pup. But worked in a bunch of different industries between software, hardware, do a little bit of everything. And about a couple of years ago, started a, a YouTube channel doing some web development tutorials, a lot of them specializing in uh, React. Nice. What's the name of the channel? I think it's just my name now. It was called Code Life, uh, and I had a domain, codelife.io, but I figured people were searching for my name. Probably should just use my name. It'd be easier to find. Good deal. We'll put a link into the show notes for that. We ran across one of your videos about React Bootstrap and thought we would talk to you about it. Can you give us the 10,000-foot view on what React Bootstrap is and how it works? Yeah, definitely. Essentially, Bootstrap, the popular front-end library, it's just a Reactified version. So it breaks all the CSS into components. So instead of applying a CSS class like row to your div, you would use the row component. So it's just a componentized version of uh, Bootstrap. I'm kind of curious because I've seen like React Bootstrap. I've also talked to people about the Bootstrap libraries for Vue and Angular. Do they... Reactify, reactize. What's the right word? <laughs> yeah, uh, react the JavaScript as well. So you know all of the uh, behaviors and things like that. A lot of that used to depend on jQuery. I think they moved away from the jQuery dependency in the latest version of Bootstrap. But yeah, they uh, they, they they get rid of that jQuery dependency, especially because that would kind of mess things up for you in yeah. React, right? Because you would have, I guess, your state management of the internal state management in React wouldn't know if a modal was triggered open or closed, if jQuery is also managing that that state and wouldn't know whether to trigger re-render. Gotcha. So there's more to it than just, okay, here are all your components. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they did a lot of the heavy lifting to make sure that it would uh, work properly with React and that you could right. you know check your state and see if you know something was triggered, opened, collapsed, and then you know write code and logic against it. I'm kind of curious, is React Bootstrap how is does it relate to the official Bootstrap project? Like, is it made by the Bootstrap team themselves? Is it like a separate, like open source endeavor? Is it some sort of corporate entity? Like, I'm just sort of curious, who are the 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 people and the structure behind the project? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. Actually, I don't know if there's actually an official React version of Bootstrap. I think all of them have been 
cobbled together because I know there's one React Strap, there's like React Bootstrap. I think there's probably two or three other variations as well out there, but I don't think there's actually an official one, unfortunately. Okay. So they all seem to do things just a little differently too. <laughs> so you try to go between them. Yeah, I'm looking at these other libraries. I don't think there's an official one for any of them. I think this is just work that people are doing so that they don't have to do, you know, we don't have four or five different versions of this, right? There's just one that everybody can use and everyone can collaborate on. Yeah, absolutely. Wish that was the case. Yeah, so I was going to ask, with um, React Bootstrap, why would I want to use that versus maybe just actually importing it directly into, into my file or even maybe doing it myself? What benefits do I get from using React Bootstrap in this? And Yeah. Yeah, I think it goes back to probably how complex of an application you're going to build. Because like we were talking about before with you know jQuery, you could, you could bring jQuery along with you and then use jQuery, but you're just not going to be able to... React won't intelligently know whether or not you know the current state of a modal has been triggered or something like that. So in this case, you could, you could do some of that lifting yourself and bring some of the stuff in yourself, but then things may be out of sync in your state of your page. And you may not be able to access certain parts or, or have your app know to re, re-render, essentially. Hey, Bryce, how did you decide to use Bootstrap instead of some of the other component libraries that are out there for React, like Ant Design or Tailwind or you know, some of the other things that seem to be pretty up and coming? Yeah, I think I've, I've used, I think, all, all the ones you've named, even Semantic uh, UI which I'm not sure if Semantic UI is supported necessarily anymore. Last I checked, it looked like it was kind of dwindling in support. I think it depends on different projects, their requirements. So I've had different projects where, you know, we need to heavily customize the look and feel of things. I know a lot of people, you know, shy away or dislike Bootstrap, right? Because they're like, it looks like Bootstrap when you use it. But from what I found when using Bootstrap, you can, you can change a lot of stuff pretty quickly to make it not look like Bootstrap. Whereas I, we have, for work, we use uh, Ant Design. And Ant Design, to me, it looks like Ant Design. It looks a lot like uh, Material UI. And it's very difficult to get away from that look and feel because a lot of the UI animations are heavily customized for that look and feel. But I think, I think Bootstrap itself is pretty customizable. On that, on the, on that part, um, one thing I've always hated about like Bootstrap or um, Semantic UI is you have to do a lot of customizing to make it look maybe your way. Are there ways to make that less onerous and maybe easier to work with? Yeah, it's been a while since I've looked at the documentation for uh, React Bootstrap or React Strap. I think a lot of them have, I know Bootstrap itself came with basically like a gigantic CSS file that would have all your variables that you could inherit from. And so you could set the base colors, primary, secondary, tertiary colors, and then a lot of those would kind of propagate down as a lot of the CSS, if I remember correctly, it's based off like a percentage base, you know, shade darkening or lightening. And so you could pretty quickly, and if you change the buttons from rounded border radiuses to square, you know, zero pixel border radiuses, to me, like that's a kind of a quick fix to make it look less bootstrap-like pretty quickly. But yeah, I mean, use other things like Ant Design. That stuff's pretty hard to customize. I've tried <laughs> numerous times to try to get into there and make it look radically different, and it's very difficult. We actually use Ant Design at my company as well for our UIs. So I'm curious, because I haven't really looked at React Bootstrap, can you do both traditional CSS or SCSS files or styled components with it? 
That's a good question. It's been, it's just been so long since I've looked at it. I'm trying to remember what I was able to do. I, I remember the styling was a lot easier than ant design. With ant design, I felt like I had to, I'm trying to remember what I did for ant design. You almost had to like wrap the components and or do very targeted selectors in order to customize things. And it became, I mean, it's very cumbersome style, but I, you know, to be honest, I can't remember. So it's been a while since I, I created that. I've got a couple of YouTube videos, but probably those React Bootstrap ones, I think have been over a year since I made those ones. What together. other YouTube videos have you been making lately? I haven't done as much for my own YouTube channel. I've been doing a couple of uh, paid projects. I've been working with a company, LogRocket. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they do uh, front-end application, kind of like replaying errors and logs and stuff like that. But been doing some YouTube tutorials for them. They're building out their YouTube channel right now. And so done a couple of videos, dockerizing applications, especially if you're you know working on like you got a Node.js, like this one I was just working on this morning. I was a Node.js app using a Docker container and kind of spinning up a little dev environment. So you, need, you don't need to actually spin up MongoDB on your local machine. You can actually just run it from the container and use Docker Compose to orchestrate that. Oh, very cool. I did uh, something similar just for myself as a personal project, but it was a fully Dockerized React front-end, Node back-end, MySQL database. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I love using it, especially production. I mean, Docker, I mean, I think that's a pretty modern flow now for most companies is use Docker containers. It's just, it's always the tricky part, I think, is, you know, getting it configured to work for a dev environment and for production and inject all the right, you know, variables in all the right places to make it all run right. Yeah, it's a little tricky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. But so I'm trying to think what else have I been working on. I do a lot of the, like for my YouTube channel, I did a lot of the React videos. They seem to trend, They'd be really popular, really hot right now. I've done a lot of Angular in the past, but it seemed to be React, I think, is the the new hotness, right? And so it seems to be taking off. I see a lot of a lot of companies adapting it, a lot of a lot of boot camps using it to teach. I think I've rarely seen a boot camp that'll teach Angular nowadays. But I'd like to see I think Vue.js looks really interesting to me though. I'd like to see more of that coming about. It seems like a nice kind of in-between between Angular and React. Have you gotten to work with the React hooks too much or suspense or any of the new concurrent stuff that they're coming out with? Uh, yeah, I use, uh, I use the React hooks all the time. Seem to be, I mean, just radically cleaning up our code base from that perspective. A lot of these long-winded, you know, classes and using Redux before and all those other things. Now you can, you know, use context, use React hooks, and then the use effect hooks really handy to get rid of that component will mount, component did mount type stuff, be able to re-trigger re-renders. And you've been using the, I don't know if you've used the uh, use memo before. A little bit, yeah. I haven't used it that much, but I found it to be super, I found an interesting pattern because I use GraphQL typically for most APIs I work with. But if you were using a traditional like REST API, you want to cache your results. You know, Redux was good at kind of maintaining that state for you and you could use like a Redux cache. But in this case, it would do, you could use that use memo, essentially cache your API requests. So you could use that to trigger it, cache it, and then see if, detect a change if a user you know, ID had changed, then you could go and then requery and repopulate that data back in there. It's kind of an interesting pattern. Yeah, for me, my React hooks knowledge is I've, I feel like at this point I've got use state and use effect kind of down. And then anything beyond that, I feel like I have absolutely no, no idea what I'm doing. So, <laughs> yeah, those seem to be kind of the go to. Those are the heavy hitters, right? 
those are the two that you know use all day use state use effect and then uh certain venturing is some of the other ones but just some of the patterns i think are interesting too because that's a, i think the big difference right in react versus like angular angular has very established patterns this is how you do things you can look at the documentation there's one way to do things in react if you go back through like my company's code base we started like two years ago you'll see four or five different React patterns in the code based on you know what time of the year it was when React released a new update. And it's like, oh, now the new thing is the context API. We're now using context everywhere. Then it's, oh, now you, you know, or higher order components. Then now it's, you know, hooks. And so now we're building our own custom hooks as a way to kind of build our application. And so it's interesting the way things have changed. It's kind of loosey-goosey and, you know, React's very intentional that way in their design that, However you want to build things, however it makes sense for your project, you do it that way. Yeah, we have a very similar sort of anti-pattern going on like that. You can see where we started using just an enzyme and snapshots. And then later on, you'll see where we switched to React testing library and functional components. And yeah, it's it's definitely forever a work in progress. <laughs> then we also switched from uh, uh, JavaScript to TypeScript about halfway through the project too. <laughs> wow. so some of the files are in TypeScript, some are not. It's... So it's a it's it's an interesting project to work in and juggle between. That's kind of interesting too, and it's one of the interesting challenges when it comes to building some of these component suites. Is that and I I did Angular for a few years, so I'm I'm very familiar. And the nice thing about writing like some sort of tool for Angular is you can come in with some of these expectations of like, oh, I know they're going to be using TypeScript, and I know how they're going to be writing CSS. And so uh, lots of times when I look at your React Bootstraps of the world or React Straps or and Design. that's one of the questions I always have is like, well, how does this support the thing that I'm doing? And like, am I going to be able to find code samples that are using all the different permutations of decisions I've made for my app? Or especially if it's like a, an app that's been around for a while, because who knows what you're going to find in there? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of those libraries, you know, don't even support uh, TypeScript a lot of times. And so you'll end up pulling in a library and it doesn't support TypeScript. Or if it does, you know, that all the types are set to any. And so it doesn't really help you at all <laughs> as you're going through the project. And so you're like, uh, you know, is this really, is this going to help my project or is it going to be more cumbersome to use, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's some of the struggle. Because, I mean, TypeScript's not, you know, a first-class citizen in, in React. You know, in Angular, it was from the get-go. Like, you had, I think, I explicitly disable TypeScript if you didn't want to use it. But in React, I remember trying to use it back when they had, you know, class components and stuff, and it was very cumbersome. And I'd spend, I felt like, you know, five minutes trying to figure out why I couldn't instantiate a new, you know, just simple, simple React class. Now it definitely seems better, and they definitely, I think, have put more time into it, especially with hooks and stuff like that. It makes it pretty easy to, to specify the types that are coming in and out, but it, it definitely seems to add on to the code base. I'm curious, how was your team's transition to TypeScript? Because my team currently just uses JavaScript and ES6, and I've heard some of the benefits of it, but I don't know if I'm willing to invest the time or start to even propose transitioning our code base to it. So how how was the learning curve? You know, how long did it take people to get up and running for you guys? Yeah, I think I think I was the only one on the team that actually had TypeScript experience before we started. Most of the team picked it up actually pretty quickly, but I think half the, the team's pretty much split down the middle right now, whether it's uh, a good use of our time or a poor use of our time to use to continue using TypeScript. 
because it definitely has a lot of overhead. You know, there's a lot more you need to add in and you spend a lot more time, I feel like, debugging, trying to get all your typings right, especially with, like an Ant design. Ant design is, to me, it's, it's a headache to try to get your types right with Ant design because there's so many moving pieces and a lot of those components are very complex components. And so the types, you have to really sometimes dig into the Ant design uh, code and actually look and see what type is it actually returning it's some custom type they made up. And so then you have to figure out, okay, well then what's in that? And you go down this rabbit hole of just trying to match types. And then sometimes, you know, I, I would say it definitely has reduced the number of errors in production probably. And we go pretty light on our front-end testing. We do a lot of back-end testing, but not as much on the front-end. And so I think it helped, it helped in that case. It was like either we got to write a ton of tests or we, we got to switch to TypeScript. And so for us, it was that decision that, I think there's some benefit to it. I don't I feel like it probably slowed down development time a little bit, but it's put out definitely more stable code in the long run. But if your team's writing tests, I mean, at the end of the day, the tests will probably do about the same. We write a lot of tests. React testing libraries very heavily utilized nowadays. And it it is sometimes a nightmare trying to test the ant design components because things like test IDs don't exist, you know, classes you can't typically use classes to identify stuff. So we've gotten very good at starting to use some of the document APIs and the built-in node APIs to traverse the DOM. But yeah, it's it's kind of a nightmare sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I, and TJ, I don't know if your experience at Angular, I remember writing tests in Angular and I felt like the setup was just a nightmare <laughs> to get some of those things running. You know, in React, it definitely, I feel like it's easier if you're testing uh, like a component library, like if you're building like a more like UI component library, like the testing is definitely easier than Angular. But I don't know what your experience was, TJ, with the Angular. Yeah, so Angular, like the good thing about Angular is it it enforces all this structure, but the bad thing about Angular is it has all this structure. So like it... <laughs> It sometimes it just gets in the way and it's way more verbose than you want it to be. Like, and I, that's how I always found Angular testing or really just kind of Angular in general is it just meant a lot more files, a lot more ceremony, whereas React just in general to me is, is easier, faster and simpler. Test especially, it's just you can get things done a lot quicker. Whereas Angular, yeah. you have to jump through some hoops because Angular's got the whole dependency injection thing going on too, which can help with testing, but it also means like all these configurations and modular modular fi- module files, and then you have to import those into making your tests run. And yeah, yeah, I, I think about it along the lines of working on an engine. So I, one of the things that I I do as a hobby that I enjoy is just working on my cars, right? And so you get in, and it's like, okay, I know why that's there, I know what it does, but sometimes it's in the way, and when I want to put a wrench down there. It means I can't turn it as well, or I need I need something to be just slightly different shape to get around it. And so, yes, there's something to attach to. Yes, it does push the application forward. And yes, it's in the way. So yeah, in, in React, it feels like you can kind of pick and choose which pieces you want to pull in. But I've also found that with things like Create React App and stuff like that, they do give you some of that ceremony and structure too. And so you can kind of split the difference depending on which way you want to attack it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's definitely a double-edged sword in that sense. You know, I went the last company I was at, I went in there and I was like, I know React. I should be okay to jump into their project. And come to find out what they were using. They were using, you know, Redux sagas 
They're using style components. I hadn't used style components before. I'd just done, you know, SAS or CSS. And what else were they using? They had hired order components for everything. They had their own patterns they, you know, developed. And so you go into the project and it's, it feels like almost a different, you know, language or framework than, you know, what you're preparing for a whole different library in that sense, based on what pieces they kind of pull off the shelf. Because React is just the presentational part, but then whatever they're using for testing, whatever they're using for, you know, managing state, what they're using for this, how they're, you know, then they were using GraphQL, which I hadn't used before. And so that was a whole different learning curve and using Apollo. And so all of a sudden you have to learn five or six different libraries, you know, which could be completely different from, you know, another project you'd work on previously. That, so to me, that's the challenge with React. Some people love it, but for me, it's, a, I think, a struggle. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had a colleague at my um, work who used Angular in his own startup. And he always said to me that with Angular, he always knew what was going on. He always knew, okay, if I want to do X, I I follow this part. But then through X, if I want to manage state, okay, I've got Funk. I can use Sagas. I can use Context. And then, yeah, so it becomes like just trying to work out which one is actually... The best, the best thing to do. So, so for you, for you, Bryce, at work, how do you decide whether whether or not to use um, Bootstrap or maybe to use Star Components? How how do you talk about it with the team members and, and decide, okay, this is what we're going to use for this project and not, and not that going forward? Yeah, it was interesting at the the company I'm currently at. We started off actually using Tailwind, which worked great. I mean, it's really quick. I mean, basically, you can the thing I like about it, you can look at you know your HTML or your you know, React uh, JSX, and you can you can see exactly what's going on. You can see p dash fours padding a four, you know, whatever the other things are for. It. But you can it's it spells it out right there. You don't have to go look somewhere else. The downside, right, is you got I mean, just it's filled. The page is filled with you know styles, basically inline styles, essentially at that point, which is you know makes it a little harder to read, especially when you have some logic you know embedded in there. And so the Tricky part is you have to be very careful and then pull that logic out. We did that for a while. The problem was as the app started to grow, you start to find that your styles are not coherent across the application. Maybe this thing has padding, you know, 10 pixels of padding. This thing has 20 pixels of padding. This thing is this color. This thing's a slightly different color. If you're not careful, it becomes pretty unwieldy. Just like any, you know, application, you have a lot of redundant code and you start seeing patterns. Hey, we're always doing the same thing. And so we kind of came at this, this fork in the road. Either we need to invest in building our own component library and everybody needs to use these components or we need to go get some library off the shelf that has some built-in components. And so what happened was we, we sat down, we looked at it. At the previous company I'd been at, we, they spent a lot of time building their own component library You know, to a point where it was, I mean, it's probably over a year they spent building this component library. And it still wasn't quite as robust as a boot, React Bootstrap or something like that. You know, you're you're talking about responsive design. All everything needs to be responsive. Everything needs to be. You're going to get so much out of the box with you know using some library off the shelf that has all that stuff already. Uh, we ended up going with Ant Design. It had a you know at the time a super and still does super robust component library and pretty good documentation, although pretty complex documentation as you start going through. There's a lot of nooks and crannies, and from time to time, I feel like I find bugs in their components where things don't render correctly or trigger re-renders. But yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a trade-off. And I think these big companies like the Ubers and the Lyfts, they got all the time in the world to go and post you know, or spend time working on component libraries for their, their teams to use. 
But in a small startup, I think that's, that's challenging. That's a huge time investment to try to get coherent styles across your app. And I think you're better off going with one of those you know, React bootstrap libraries. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. I'm curious. One of the, the tools you mentioned as well is styled components. I'm curious what your ex- experience with that is and your sort of opinion on it. Cause I've sort of still got uh, mixed opinions about the whole like CSS and JavaScript approach. And I'm, I'm curious what experience you have in that and any opinions you have. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, this is definitely a hot debate, right? <laughs> Whether you should write, you know, traditional styles. And I think, you know, going back to Angular, I think that was the great thing about Angular was like your, you could scope your styles to the component pretty easily. Yeah. Um, it, and it was so nice. Like, that's the one thing I miss. There are few things I miss about Angular, but I think Angular had a great approach to handling CSS that React doesn't really have any good equivalent of. Yeah, I think Vue.js, I think you can, in your style, style section, you can put scoped in the tag and it'll scope it just that component, which is like a nice, really nice feature. Yeah, I, I love know, that. Yeah, yeah, I saw that and I was like, this is genius. I'm like, that's all React needs. Like, <laughs> React just needs that. And it would kind of fix a lot of the issues. But instead, that definitely becomes a problem. It's, this is definitely like a thing I ask people like in an interview, when I interview for like a React job, say, how, you know, what do you do for styling and how do you manage... Uh, naming conflicts with your, you know, class names. And for some people, it's never even crossed their mind that they, you know, a large project, you could have conflicting class names. You know, if somebody creates one called BTN for button, you know, in a couple places, all of a sudden their styles start overriding. If you're using traditional CSS, if you're using, you know, SAS, you can, you know, scope stuff by nesting it. I don't, I don't know. I'm on the fence, the JS, CSS and JS. It seems like a good idea. I think, Especially as you, I mean, the, the old approach, right, was to flip on and off class names, you know, to style things. But instead with CSS and JS, you can literally inject the variables in and then kind of move some of that logic into your actual your style sheets as opposed to just having them be kind of a static entity now that can be more dynamic. So I think, I think it's helpful. But I don't know. I think I'm still on the fence. I mean, good old traditional, you know, SAS works pretty good. I kind yes. of feel the same way that you do. I've done a little bit of styled components in small projects that I've just been working on personally. But when you look at the size of some of the components that my team deals with on a daily basis, if we added CSS to that, it would make <laughs> it would make it twice as long, if not longer. So we're very happy with our SCSS files that are separate. And you know, everything, every component or container has some kind of a div wrapper on it almost. So having it scoped just by that has saved us a lot of time. And I think a lot of naming collisions that we otherwise would have run into. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing I, I still struggle with though is figuring out how to have a naming convention in CSS that I can use for the whole team. Because I find that I hate BEM. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> it's like the BEM approach, but I mean, I can see, I can see why it would work, but I've always found it hard to find 
a way to have a naming style that can be used for the whole team, especially let's say in my work, you've got uh, uh, members that are not maybe working on, on the front end code base a lot and they're jumping in and out of the code base. So I don't know how you approach um, Bryce and um, the show company. Yeah, we don't, we don't, you know, and most companies I've been at don't really, I haven't used uh, BEM or is it Beam? BEM? BEM. Uh, BEM, right? Yeah. <laughs> BEM. Yeah. I, I've never, I've never actually had to use that in production. Familiar with the concepts of, you know, how to name stuff, but never actually done that. Yeah. And I think that's tough, right? If you have people jumping in and out, like there's kind of a mental overload. If you work on this front end app all the time, you know, the ins and outs of everything. But when you don't, when you don't work in it daily, maybe you don't understand that there's certain unwritten rules that you need to follow. And that becomes a real struggle. And that's where I think, you know, automatic scoping of styles, you know, is pretty helpful, especially if you're using SAS, just use a nested, you know, style there. Like a lot of times in style components, what I'll do is I don't even, because I really dislike making special components just for like one div, you know, and then call it like my wrapper div component. Because then I can't really, at a glance, I can't really tell what it's doing. I'd rather see the actual class names applied to it. And so what I'll do is actually just wrap the whole component in a styles component tag if I'm doing uh, style components. And then up above, I'll write some styles right there and just you know do nested kind of styling, so, similar to what you do like in SAS if you're doing using SAS for your React app. Yeah, the thing I always, I, I try to avoid, but I think always becomes a, a certain reality once your project gets to a certain size is you have these the these class names and trying to find where those are actually defined can be hard uh, at times. I, I think that's the one appeal of style components is just having yeah, for sure. the stuff right there is super handy. But it it's like even that becomes unwieldy. Uh, like Paige was mentioning this earlier. For simple things, it's actually quite elegant. And uh, when I get it in nice little samples, it's like, oh, this is actually kind of nice, but I I have trouble envisioning how it's going to work when you start to get into hundreds of lines of code in your components and hundreds of components in your apps. And like, it just seems like good old fashioned SAS and breaking up your files is probably just a more feasible way of scaling that sort of thing up. Yeah, I think it just bothers me when I see, you know, it says like wrapper component and I'm guessing it's a div. I don't know if it's a div tag. You know, you don't know what the, the base tag is even. And that to me is... Uh, a struggle. I don't know if it's a list item, it's an anchor tag, you know, just looking through the code and then I got to go reference the style components elsewhere. I mean, it's not terribly different than if you had separate, separated, you know, SAS or CSS files, right? But I think not knowing the base tag to me, if, if I think I'd be okay with it if they had like maybe some combination of the name or maybe, maybe it's just a naming convention you need to come up with, right? And just be like div wrapper component, you know, li whatever component maybe it would be helpful. Yeah, and if you take that to your the, to its logical conclusion, you end up with BEM or OOCSS or like That's like the conversation, like somewhere there was a room of people having this conversation and they went, I got it, let's call it BEM and like come up with all this verbose class yeah. names and such. I mean, I don't know. Full circle. I, I feel like we yeah. still haven't found a happy medium for handling CSS in terms of the naming, I think, because... As much as we can have style components, you can have SAS. You, the, the naming I find is the thing that always trips me up. And because um, let's say I, I go into a new company and it's got a code base that's legacy, and I'm trying to work out, okay, what styles do you want? And it could be that one developer jumped in 
and in one corner of the code base, the, the, the naming that is different to everywhere else. And then you have, have to kind of untangle the code in that regard as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's always a struggle, the unwritten rule. I mean, and to me, that I mean, it goes back to my same qualms I kind of have with React, where it's just so, you know, loose and you can do whatever you want, which is great. But at the same time, you have to be a member of that team full time, understand all the written, unwritten rules. Like, we only put, these things in this folder directory. We only put these things in this directory. Then when we name stuff, we do it like this. And, you know, we've, at different companies, we've had a contractor come in to kind of help out with one feature. And you go and look at the code and it's completely different than what everybody else has been doing. And you're just like scratching your head trying to read through it. It makes it, you know, harder to read through too when, when they do something completely different like that. We've had very similar discussions about all kinds of consistency within our application. Like sometimes you'll see people writing traditional function expressions. Sometimes, most of the time we do arrow functions. But yeah, it's just, it's so hard sometimes to keep everybody, especially with a team. Because we have, I think, 20 developers who are working on one big React code base. Ooh. Trying to keep everybody going in the same direction oh, wow. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> I find it hard enough with like three or four people. Get about yeah. 20 people. Mm. <laughs> it's like herding cats sometimes. <laughs> well, that's where I think, I mean, a lot of these companies, I think, shift towards building their own component library at that point. Because, you know, if, it, if you can't use a component off the shelf, we need to make a new component. And it really, I think drives the conversation. Is this something that's a unique, you know, butterfly that needs to be something completely new in our code base? Or is there some component out there that we should be using? So, you know, it has coherent look and feel, and we're not rewriting code that's doing something very, very similar. But again, such an investment to build your own component library and maintain it. Then you got to use Storybook and whatever else to, you know, document it and comes a whole another project at that point in time. Yeah you've discovered challenges that you didn't realize some of these things were solving for you, like accessibility. I mean, depending on the scale of what you're building, like if you care about internationalization, like some of these things mm-hmm. are built into some of these solutions. And when you start to have to roll it on your own, browser support, mobile, tablets, touch devices, like it, it depends on the scale. Like if you're operating at a big enough scale, and like you said, you have your own like sort of special unique snowflake situation like there's a certain scale where you do like facebook's not using ant design on facebook.com right because they they have the the team and the specialization necessary it's just that line has to be pretty high though you have to be a sufficiently large or uh, unique situation for that investment to make sense usually the entire team just cranking out components all day every day for that yeah we've had some issues in the past which caused us to want to go to Ant Design, which was that we have multiple teams doing all kinds of different applications internally, and all the applications looked slightly different. You know, they're, even though we're supposed to have kind of a governing UX look about our apps, everybody's app was a special snowflake, and all the teams had hand rolled most of their styling. So it looked kind of similar, but not quite the same when you started to look across different things. And they were just like, we've got to fix this. This is, this is not good. Yeah, we were in the same exact boat. That's, I mean, that's why we had to go with Ant. I mean, or go with something, right? Because everyone was hand-rolling their own styles using... I mean, if you're using Tailwind, I mean, you're still using a library. But at the end of the day, everything was just slightly different. And there was a lot of repeated code 
as well. But then we started making components to get rid of the repeated code, which then we're like, are we building a component library? If so, we need to start documenting it. And then you're like, oh gosh, we're now in the business of maintaining a component library. What have we done? <laughs> what have we done now? <laughs> Other teams start making pull requests for new features. Yeah, I mean, yeah. at, at my company, we actually took an approach of, we didn't choose a library like Bootstrap and Design. We just said, we'll just basically build the components as we go along. Basically, we're building a new app from scratch. And so as we build new screens, we see, okay, this maybe is, is a drop-down or a form. We'll get a library for that and then style it to our needs internally and then have that kind of a, 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 an internal library of, of components we have as opposed to getting an entire library of forms, buttons, major buttons, uh, input fields, and then having to change those, but doing it kind of a step-by-step. And I think that's kind of works because at least it means we don't have to build everything at once, but it's more gradual and we can actually tweak things as we go along. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting approach. Uh, The last company I worked with, we were very design heavy. We built a lot of prototypes and things like that. And so we we had like three designers and three developers and we worked pretty closely hand in hand and it was heavily design focused. But it got to a point where the designers would come up with these incredible designs. They were very talented. <laughs> but I was like, this will take me weeks to implement with, you know, animations. And I mean, for a simple prototype, I mean, it's, it's almost too robust. And so I think at one point I decided, I was like, hey, let's go this direction. I'll, here's the bootstrap library. You can take any of these things and you can tweak them. Colors, fonts, <laughs> you know, border radiuses. If it doesn't exist in this component library, we don't want to use it, you know. And because we're not going to, you know, unless there's a very unique case where we need to hand roll one component or two components, but the forms and everything, we're not going to build these special forms. And plus from a user experience, I mean, people are used to seeing these things the same way every single time you start building stuff that's new and unique and looks radically different. Sometimes you can confuse your users. Yeah, I think I think on that point, it's also good if you have a, a good communication with the designers. So in my team, um, we speak to the designer a lot as he's building the, the screens. And we, we'll say to her, okay, this works, this, this doesn't work. So over time, she kind of understands what can and can't be done. So I think if there's no communication, that can be a, a, an issue that the designers build a really good design, really stunning. But in terms of actually using it, it's a practical and won't work at all. Yeah, for us, our UX designer is actually embedded with our team and our product manager too. So they sit with us, they work with us daily. So it's very easy to have those conversations of what is possible versus not possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, then it's always fun when you have no UI, UX person or no designer. You just let the developers design (laughs) design how they want. (laughs) Those are some scary websites, man. I can tell you. Yeah. That's like, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Topgolf before. Mm -hmm. So I used to work for Topgolf and there was like maybe five of us developers this back years ago when they were still smaller. But they had maybe, I mean, we had no UI, UX person on the team, no designer marketing would walk over and hand us they're like you know basically they take a screenshot of something and bring it into powerpoint and then just like draw they would just put some clip art where like a button should go or something like that like a build this it was like i I showed up and just scratched my head because everybody there wasn't really interested in the user experience you know whatsoever it was just it was purely marketing driven so it was it was, I mean, a radical change. It was like scratching my head. I'm like, I don't know if that really makes sense. If this is your goal, <laughs> what, we can skip this whole page. You don't even need this page, you know, stuff like that. And 
I, it's really interesting when you start designing uh, pages and start really thinking about the user experience walking through that. Looks like there is one Top Golf in Michigan. I was I had to Google it because I had never even heard of the company. So oh, you ne- never oh really? It's uh, I it's still want to cool. go to one. There's one in Salt Lake. Yeah, they have uh, basically it's like a driving range on steroids. So they all the golf balls have little RFID chips embedded in them, and then you hit them out, you know, into the range. And there's targets out there that look like a spider web. So at the bottom uh, of the spider web is a little RFID reader, and I'll scan the golf ball. And so when it dispenses, it you know, maps it to your user, you hit the golf ball, it gets another scan when it goes through the nets, and then they can actually map that back to you. And then there's all kinds of games and stuff you can play and scoring and stuff like that you can put together based on all these combinations of players hitting golf balls at different times. When the world is done ending, I think I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah, if you're semi-decent <laughs> at golf, it's great. If you're not, which is kind of where I am, I'm like a mini golf champion and that's about it. Golf is not so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I can have fun losing. I'm I'm horrible at golf, but I, I, I've embraced... Once you sort of embrace that you're bad at it and you just own it, then it's okay, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's just what you got to go with. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's still good, even for the beginners. I mean, it's kind of like bowling, right? Like, you know, most people go bowling are professional bowlers, but you still go out there and have fun, you know, and they serve beer and all that stuff. So can't go yeah. wrong there. <laughs> Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine. And it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. All right, let's do some picks. TJ, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I have one for today. Uh, If you, like me, since being home a lot, are drinking a lot more coffee, I've gotten pretty lazy in my coffee drinking. So our Keurig machine is like running on overdrive right now. We're we're putting it through its paces. And we started buying uh, from this company called San Francisco Bay Coffee. So if you're familiar with the, the Keurig Bacay cups, they're usually like little plastic things. So this company makes ones that are like biodegradable. So they're a little nicer on the environment if, you, if you're cranking through these things like we are. Uh, and, and it's actually pretty good as well. So that will be my pick. Awesome. Carl, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got one pick. And it's an article, which is basically a visual guide to React metamodels. And it's an article that basically talks through React and how to think about things like JSX, um, functions. And I think it's a really good article for either beginners or if you want to have a kind of um, go back to your, the basics and, and see what's going on with React. So yeah, that's my pick for today. Awesome. Paige, what are your picks? Mine is an application that you can download for mobile or for tablet. It's called House Party. And a couple of our friends actually got us into this just the other day. But it's basically just a way to play games with your friends virtually. They have stuff like Pictionary, uh, Trivia, 
charades, as well as you can just hang out with your friends and chat, which is what we ended up doing last night for a couple hours before we even got started playing games. So it's another one that's just a cool way to connect virtually with people and be able to keep in touch and then have something fun to do while you're doing it. So I would say give it a try. You'll be surprised how many people are, you know who are already on there. Awesome. Yeah, we, I, I have a bunch of guys that I get together with and we play board games and that's been an issue for us. We, we got together, we had a Zoom call going concurrently and then played games on Board Game Geek or Board Game Arena, boardgamearena.com. So I'll, I'll do a pick for that and then just remind people to go check out React Native Remote Conference in July. Bryce, do you have some picks for us? What are the picks entail? It's just anything you like, anything that's making your life better. Yeah, definitely. So lately I've been into Elixir. That's what my company currently uses for our backend uh, programming language. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. But this yeah, we past have a podcast week, on it. Elixir. Oh, makes... yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so they, this past week they released uh, Phoenix 1.5, which is kind of the, the Rails framework of Elixir. And a lot of cool features with LiveView. I don't know if you had a chance to check that out. I can find a link and post it in there. But really cool. It, like, it kind of almost is blending the gap between having a single page app with dynamic forms and everything. It maintains a state on the server and then allows you to send data back and forth, a super light payload. And so you can get these dynamic forms that on the flies you're typing, you know, are doing form validation with essentially no JavaScript involved. And so it gets pretty close to to making a justification doing just a complete server-side rendered app. Let's see if I can find a, a link for you. Yeah, we've, we've done a whole bunch of episodes on things related to Phoenix and LiveView and yeah, good stuff. All right, and Bryce, if people want to find you online, where do they find you? Uh, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Bryce Ayers. They can probably also find me uh, my website, codelife.io. I'm not sure I have any content up right now. <laughs> need to put something back up or probably find me on Twitter. I think my Twitter handle's a uh, code life io awesome all right folks we're gonna go ahead and wrap this one up until next time max out bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more